Well, good morning to everyone. It's, it's good to be back with you after a couple of weeks away. We had a fine visit up in southern Ontario, in Toronto, or Toronto, as we say, those who are from there. A great time visiting family and friends, but it is certainly good to be back with you. You, you caught me, you caught us off guard on Wednesday night. Uh, thank you for that random display of affection and for that uh, marvelous bounty you sent us home with. Uh, this little gem has, has proven to be particularly useful over the past week, and I certainly thank you for that. And uh, I look forward to our 10th anniversary with you to see what you will give us then. Look forward to that with much anticipation. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 12. John chapter 12. In your bulletin, you'll see a little outline for today's uh, sermon. You'll notice at the top of that page, there is a, an overview of the book of John. I've given this to you on at least two or three occasions already. Uh, John's gospel account, the structure is very, very simple. Five major sections. It's written right there for you in the bulletin. Uh, section number one, the introduction, or what we might call the prologue. Chapter one, verses one through 18. Uh, section number two, an account of Christ's public ministry. From chapter one, verse 19, all the way through to the end of chapter 12. And then a third section, an account of Christ's private Ministry from chapter 13, verse 1 through to the end of chapter 17. And then we have an account of Christ's passion, the fourth section, his passion, Paseo, his suffering, his intercessory work, beginning in chapter 18, verse 1, right through to the end of chapter 20. And then to finish it all off, there is a conclusion in chapter 21, or what is called an epilogue. That second section, beginning in chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through to the end of chapter 12, Christ's public ministry is summed up in one little verse, one little statement found in chapter 1, verse 11. He, that is Christ, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's what we've seen time and time again as we've made our way through those chapters, isn't it? That the Lord Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And then by way of a summary statement for Christ's private ministry, beginning in chapter 13, verse 1, right through to the end of chapter 17, we find a succinct statement right there in the first verse of chapter 13. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To his owns. Chapter 1, verse 11. He came unto his own. That is his own by way of creation. And primarily, the, ethnically or nationally speaking, the Jews in his creation rejected him. His own. Those who were his by virtue of creation. And that's what we have throughout his public ministry. A rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. But see, then we come to chapter 13. Having loved his own. It's a different own. His own who were in the world. Not merely those who are his own by virtue of creation, but those who are his own by virtue of redemption. 
those whom the Father has given to him before the foundation of the world. Tremendous summary statement that. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, in our study, we have arrived, finally, at the end of Christ's public ministry. We have arrived at chapter 12, verses 37 through 50 in which John provides a summary statement or a summary account of everything that has gone before, all the way back to chapter 1, verse 19, all the way up to this moment, and this this display that he has made of this public rejection of Christ, he summarizes, gives, gives a summary account, beginning in verse 37 right through to verse 50. Now, what we're going to do this morning is, is, is somewhat simple. We're going to focus in on the context. These verses, for us to understand these verses, this, this portion of God's word, we have to set it in its context. What is the context? As you read these verses, you discover that John quotes twice from the prophet Isaiah. And the context for what John wants to get across in these verses can only be understood in the context of that Old Testament passage that he has one eye on as he pens these words. And what Old Testament passage is that? Well, look at what John records in verse 41 of chapter 12. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. It is an obvious reference, of course, to Isaiah chapter 6. And so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles all the way back to the Old Testament All the way back to the book of Isaiah. And what we're going to do this morning is look at most of this chapter, Isaiah 6. And that will set the stage for chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. That shouldn't perplex you. God's word is a unified whole, isn't it? And we can only really understand the New Testament in the context of the Old And so to get our minds around what John is going to say there at the end of chapter 12, we have to set it in the context which is forefront in his mind as found back in Isaiah chapter 6. And so follow along as I read these verses for us. Beginning in the first verse, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, 
Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now again, just so that we're perfectly clear. That sets the context for John 12, verses 37 through 50. What we're going to do this morning is focus in on the first seven verses in Isaiah 6. And then, Lord willing, when we come together next Lord's Day, we'll go back to John 12 and we'll expound John 12 and see what John is seeking to convey there by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 6, 1 to 7. I have had the opportunity, I thank God for it, I have had the opportunity on several occasions to preach from this text over the years. And every time I have preached from these verses, the Lord has has blessed me. And even this past week, as I've sat secluded in my office way back in there, and as I've poured over these verses and gone over them and meditated upon them, The Lord has blessed my own heart as he has again impressed upon me his glory, his majesty, his excellence. That is what these verses are intended to convey. And that in and of itself should be sufficient for us to see our God put on display his his splendor laid bare before us upon which we can fix our gaze to our soul's delight, to our soul's content, and to our soul's fulfillment. So that's what we're all about this morning. That's what we're going to seek to do by the Spirit's help as we meditate upon the first seven verses of Isaiah 6. To help us do that, I'm going to ask four questions. You've already noticed that if you've already peeked at the bulletin and taken a glance, a quick glance at that outline there, Four very simple questions that we're going to ask and answer to help us see what Isaiah saw. The first question is simply this, as you might expect. What did Isaiah see? What did he see? As we read the first two verses, we discover that Isaiah saw two things. First of all, right there at the start of verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, here's what I saw. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That's the first thing he saw. Notice three things. First of all, he saw the Lord, capital L, small o, small r, small d. It is therefore in Hebrew, Adonai. Adonai, the plural of Adon. Adam, a term that we find throughout the Old Testament in reference to human relationships. And so Sarah calls Abraham her Adam, that is her Lord. Eliezer calls Abraham his 
Adin, that is his Lord, his master. It's a term we find it throughout Scripture, the Old Testament, describing human relationships. But it is also a term that we find in the Old Testament applied as a title to God. Pointing to what? Pointing to the fact that God is the supreme Adin or Adonai, the supreme Lord. He is the supreme master. Or as Moses declares in Deuteronomy 10:17, for the Lord your God is God, Eloah, of gods, Elohim, and Lord, Adon, of lords, Adonai, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. That is what Isaiah sees. He sees the Lord, the supreme sovereign of the universe. He sees him sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. That can only, I think, be appreciated and fully understood in light of the very first statement that Isaiah makes in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. You see, Uzziah had reigned over Judah for, I think it was 52, 53 years. Years. That means there were people who had been born, had lived their lives, and had died during the reign of Uzziah. That means most of the people of Judah had only ever known one earthly king, Uzziah. And all of a sudden, Uzziah is dead. He has passed. He is gone. Just like all earthly kings, you can imagine the people's perplexity. You can imagine their worry. You can imagine imagine as they anticipate political and social upheaval. Our king is gone. He has gone the way of all earthly monarchs. Well, in stark contrast to Uzziah, who has died just like every other king before him and every other king or human ruler since him, in stark contrast, what does Isaiah see? I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. In other words, the Lord reigns from his throne A throne that is exalted above all earthly human thrones. A throne that is unmovable. A throne that is unshakable. It is the throne from which he knows the end from the beginning. The throne from which he pronounces his decrees. The throne from which he effects his will among the heavenly host and among humans on the face of the earth. It is the throne from which God reigns supreme. In stark contrast to earthly leaders who come and go and are like the dust in the wind. There's a third thing here. Isaiah sees the Lord, yes, sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Then he adds another statement. And the train of his robe filled the temple. What's that all about? A couple of weeks ago, when we were back in southern Ontario, we were down visiting Allison's parents. They live in a place called St. Catharines, not far from Niagara Falls. And there's a little town, a little village, very quaint, quite beautiful, not unlike Fredericksburg, just south of here. It's called Niagara on the Lake. And Niagara on the Lake was a bunch of British royalists back in the 18th century who crossed the Niagara Gorge and they settled in this area just across from New York State, Niagara on the Lake. And even to this day, they celebrate their British origin. 
their British history. And so you go into the little shops, the little stores, and you will see all of these reminders of the British monarchy and portraits of the Queen. As a matter of fact, as you travel around in Canada, anywhere, I suppose, if you go into any municipal or government, provincial or federal building, you'll see a portrait of the Queen. If you go into a hockey rink, you'll see a portrait of the Queen. Why? It's a constitutional monarchy. And the thing that has always impressed me about these portraits isn't really Elizabeth herself, Queen Elizabeth II. It isn't necessarily the crown upon her head. It isn't even that enormous scepter in her hand. It is that robe, that train that falls from her shoulders, cascades down the steps in front of her. Why? Symbolizing what? Well, the greater the train, the greater the monarch. The larger the train of the robe, the greater the grandeur of the monarch. How big is the train of God's robe? It fills the temple. Do you see the imagery here of what what the Lord is seeking to convey to Isaiah? That the train of his robe fills the temple. How great is God? How glorious is God? What is the extent of his domain? What is the extent of his splendor? What is the extent of his grandeur? Limitless. It fills the temple, the dwelling place of God. So this is what Isaiah sees. He has this tremendous vision of the Lord, the Lord of Lords, the Adonai, sitting upon a throne, an unmovable, unshakable throne, high and lifted up, exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. But Isaiah sees something else. Verse 2. This is the second thing he sees. Above him, that is above the Lord, stood the seraphim, angelic beings. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Of everything that Isaiah could have said about these angelic beings, he gravitates to their wings. Of everything that undoubtedly caught his attention and was awe-inspiring, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he sees fit to mention their wings, their wings being of particular significance. With two, they cover their faces, pointing to the fact that even these angelic beings cannot gaze upon the glory of God. We need to remind ourselves of a very important fact here. These seraphim are not fallen beings. They are not sinful beings. You remember Moses, he makes that request. He he says, he prays to God, show me your glory. And the Lord responds, no one can see my glory and live. A fallen, sinful human being cannot gaze upon the essence that the, the light of God's glory without being utterly consumed. Well, these angelic beings, they aren't sinful. They aren't fallen creatures. But even these seraphim, which are holy, set apart to God, to minister on his behalf. Even as they minister in his presence, they cover their faces. The brightness of his eternal glory, too much for them to behold. And then with two of their wings, they cover their feet. An expression of humility. You think of Moses again as he stands at the burning bush and the Lord speaks to him in the desert from the midst of that bush. 
And as Moses draws near to it to speak to the Lord, the Lord declares, take the sandals off of your feet. For the ground you now walk upon is holy. Whereas Joshua, before the fall of Jericho, is out by himself in the fields and is approached by a warrior, the captain of the heavenly hosts. And as he draws near, the captain of the Lord's army says to him, take the sandals off of your feet. For the ground you now tread upon is holy. You see, feet, a symbol of creatureliness. Feet, a symbol of finitude. When you go back into the medieval ages, you go back to the time of the Roman Empire. Slaves never wore shoes. Why? It was an expression, a symbol of their inferiority in the presence of a superior. And even here, these seraphim, these great, majestic, angelic beings, cover their feet, this symbol of creatureliness, that they are in the presence of their Creator. And then obviously with two of these wings, they fly about in the presence of the Lord. That's what Isaiah sees. Are you following this? Tremendous vision. Firstly, of the Lord himself, this revelation of his glory. And secondly, of these angels ministering in God's presence, these seraphim. The second question is as follows. What does Isaiah hear? We know what he sees. And what does he hear? The first thing he hears right there in verse three. And one that is of the seraphim called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, 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 as we sang but moments ago, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When we want to use the superlative in English, you know, if something, an apple tastes really good, we'll say, oh, that tastes really good, or that's very good. We'll insert that little word really or very for emphasis, and that's how we form the superlative in English. In the Hebrew language, they don't have anything like that. The Jews, when they want to emphasize something, when they want to use a superlative, what they do is they repeat the word. And so you think of some of Christ's discourses in the Gospels. Truly, truly, I say to you, he's emphasizing that he is about to declare the truth. What what I'm about to say is really true. Well, here these seraphim flying about in the presence of the Lord declare his holiness. But they don't merely declare that he is holy. They don't merely declare that he is holy, holy. But they proclaim for all to hear that God, the Lord, lofty and exalted, is holy, holy, holy. It is the superlative in Hebrew. In other words, there is nothing more holy than God. He is the the holiest of the holy. He is the one in whom holiness itself resides. When we think of God's holiness and when we think of all that Scripture declares concerning His holiness, we have to keep two things in mind. First of all, when we read of God's holiness in Scripture, at times it refers to His blamelessness. That He is spotless. 
That he is morally pure. There is no imperfection in God. There is no hint of sin in God. He is holy, blameless. And at other times when we read of God's holiness in his word, what is primarily in view is his incomparableness. That there is not anything that can be compared to God. Uh, He is incomparable in his being. Infinite. Nothing can be compared with his being, not the seraphim, certainly not mere dust such as ourselves. But God is being his essence, his nature is infinite, filling the created order and yet not limited by all of creation. We think of his incomparableness, we think of his attributes, his power and his wisdom, his loving kindness. And his righteousness, these are inexhaustible. There is nothing in heaven or on earth that can be compared with his attributes. And when we meditate upon his incomparableness, we have in view his works. His work of creation. His work of providence. His work of redemption. That there are no other works. There have never been any works like these performed among men. That God is completely incomparable. And that's what these seraphim are declaring one to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Capital L. Capital O. Capital R. And capital D. It's no longer Adonai. It is Jehovah, Yahweh, holy, holy, holy. His personal name is the Lord, the one who is unchangeable in essence, the one who is eternal, the one who is therefore faithful, the one who is the Lord of hosts, that is the heavenly hosts, just as a monarch's grandeur is put on display by the length of the train of his or her robe, so too the grandeur of a monarch is directly proportionate, directly related to the size of their armies. How big is God's army? He's the Lord of hosts, the heavenly hosts. And then they add to this cry, the whole earth is full. Of his glory reminds me of what the psalmist declares the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's the first thing Isaiah hears. And then the second thing he hears is found in verse four. And the foundations of the thresholds, this is of the temple, shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. I have never experienced an earthquake. I have never been anywhere anywhere near an earthquake. But I don't doubt for a moment that what Isaiah went through here would have made any earthly earthquake pale in comparison as the thresholds of the temple, the foundation of the temple itself, shakes in response to this cry on the part of the seraphim. What strikes me as quite amazing is this. The foundation of the temple is made up of what? Rocks? Mortar? Stones? The foundation of the temple is an inanimate object. It doesn't have a soul. It wasn't made in the image of God. 
wasn't made to fellowship with God and to delight in God, and yet even this inanimate object, rocks and mortar, when this cry goes forth and resounds, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Even this inanimate object responds. And as I thought upon this, over the past few days, I was stricken in my own soul. As I thought to myself, how spiritually obtuse I must be. That at times when confronted with the majesty and the glory of God, I can remain so unmoved. I can remain so ho-hum, so casual. And yet even that which is inanimate responds. How this reminds me of my own spiritual dullness. My desperate need of the Spirit of God to awaken me as to His greatness that I might tremble, that I might feel the weight of His glory and respond and tremble in His presence. That's what Isaiah hears. He hears the seraphim. And then he hears the response of the thresholds of the temple. The third question is this. What does Isaiah say? Verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. It's a little word you find throughout Scripture. You find it in prophecies such as Habakkuk. You'll find it in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus himself employed it on numerous occasions, especially in his scathing rebukes of the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you hypocrites. And here we find it here, Isaiah, in reference to himself. Woe is me. What does it mean? It basically means cursed is me. I am cursed. What does it mean to be cursed? Well, to be cursed is the opposite of being blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Blessing is God enjoyed. As Moses says in Numbers 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. To be blessed is to know God's favor. To be blessed is to enjoy God's countenance shining upon us. To be cursed is the opposite. To be cursed is to be cut off. To be cursed is to know God's displeasure. And here Isaiah utters this cry, woe is me, I am lost. Why, Isaiah, why? He gives us two reasons. First of all, he says right there in verse 5, 4, I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I don't know about you, but I find that kind of melodramatic. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm finished. I'm cursed. You expect expect that Isaiah is about to air his dirty laundry, right? You expect the skeletons are about to come out of the closet. And Isaiah is about to rhyme off these, these heinous and terrible sins that he has committed The best he can come up with is this. 
I am a man of unclean lips. Yeah, pause and think about it for a moment. This is perhaps the profoundest declaration of our own sinfulness that we can make in the presence of God. Listen to the words of Christ in Matthew 15. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. And so when Isaiah acknowledges that he is a man of unclean lips, when he acknowledges that he dwells in the midst of a people also characterized by unclean lips, he's not simply saying, hey, we've said a few things we wish we could take back. No, he is making a fundamental declaration concerning his own sinfulness. He knows where those unclean lips come from. They are a reflection of what dwells within in the state of his heart. And so this is an acknowledgement. This is a confession of his own sinfulness in the presence of his holiness, the Lord of glory. And then he adds a second reason. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I have caught this glimpse, this theophany, if you like, this, this visible manifestation of the one who dwells in unapproachable light. It has been given to me. It has been granted to me to taste of God's glory. I know who he is. I know who I am. Therefore, woe is me, for I am lost. That's what Isaiah sees, says rather. There's an invaluable lesson here for us. Uh, This is a road we would rather not take. We would rather not go down. This kind of bearing of the soul before a holy God, these kind of of weighty eternal truths, at at times we we much rather deal with the the frivolous and the peripheral. And so we downplay these matters of such weight and of such importance that bear down upon our souls. I was reminded of this this, this, this past week. A, a staff were going through uh, John Piper's book, Brothers, Chris, help me. Brothers, we are not professionals. And there was something that Piper says in one of the chapters of that book that just hit me like a brick wall. He writes, if I do not believe in my heart these awful truths, believe them so that they are real in my feelings, then the blessed love of God in Christ will scarcely shine at all. The sweetness of the air of redemption will be hardly detectable. The infinite marvel of my new life will be commonplace. The wonder that to me a child of hell All things are given for an inheritance will not strike me speechless with trembling humility and lowly gratitude. The whole affair of salvation and my entrance into paradise will seem as a matter of course. When the heart no longer feels the truth of hell, the gospel passes from good news to simply news. The intensity of joy is blunted and the heart spring of love 
is dried up. Let me ask you, Fred, have you ever been where Isaiah's been? Have you ever been undone in the presence of God? Has your sinfulness, has my sinfulness ever been laid bare, the blackness of our heart, in the presence of the one who is holy, holy, holy? It's the first step in salvation. When we come face to face with our desperate need, It drives us out of ourselves to seek a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Far too many of us would rather not go down that road. We want nothing to do with that. Give me something touchy-feely, but not something so stark and heavy and weighty. Friend, there is no salvation other than the road which Isaiah goes down here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who have been humbled in the presence of God, broken before God's holiness. For theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. It leads us naturally to the fourth question. What does Isaiah feel? We know what he sees, the Lord and the seraphim. We know what he hears, the seraphim's cry, the temple's response in shaking. We know what he says, woe is me for I am lost. What does he feel? Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. We were out at the Velasters a few weeks ago, and uh, and James lit up the barbecue, put the coals on the barbecue. It wasn't a gas barbecue, old-fashioned, got the coals out there. And as he lit those coals and they began to turn from black to red, my mind went back to this verse. What would it be like to grab one of those coals with tongs and touch my lips? Here's a question for you. Do you think this was a pleasurable experience for Isaiah? you think he enjoyed this? I dare say it was, it was an overwhelmingly painful experience. As this burning coal is taken by this seraphim with this tongs and, and it touches his lips, his mouth. You, you, you drink that hot cup of coffee or that hot bowl of soup and it's, and it's too hot, piping hot. It touches your lips. The pain surges through your head, your entire body. I dare say that's what conversion is like, friends. That is what conversion is like. It tears at us. As, we're, as, we are, as we are humbled in the presence of God, it tears at our pride. It tears at our self-love, self-admiration and self-preoccupation. It tears at our self-righteousness. And the overwhelming realization that we stand at the precipice of a lost eternity. That we deserve the wrath of a holy God. We've gone through life to this point oblivious to our peril. It overwhelms the soul. Painful experience. And yet it issues in the greatest comfort, doesn't it? Look with me again at verse 7. And he touched my mouth. 
and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Wait for it. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Where does this, where does this burning coal come from? Last word in verse 6, the altar. What is the altar, the brass altar? What transpired at the brass altar throughout the history of the nation of Israel? It is where they brought their lambs and bullocks and goats, all of those sacrifices. And it is where they slaughtered those countless sacrifices and those animals were laid upon the altar offered as a soothing aroma to God, and that entire sacrificial system, including that brass altar, that brazen altar itself, pointed to the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. What what is most marvelous is this isn't the only vision Isaiah has, is it? You fast forward to Isaiah 53, and he has another vision, doesn't he? Of the same person, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there it is not the Lord Jesus Christ in all his heavenly glory. It is the Lord Jesus Christ as the suffering Lamb of God. The one who was pierced through for our transgressions. The one who was put to death that we might live. The one who bore God's wrath on our behalf that our sin might be atoned for. Meaning. God's judgment might be satisfied. God's wrath might be turned away. And God's mercy, the the mercy of this thrice holy God might be bountifully poured out upon our soul. Those are the answers to the four questions. That's what Isaiah sees. That's what Isaiah hears. That's what he says. And that's what he feels. The application is manifold. We could go down all sorts of avenues this morning. Let me suggest, let me submit some to you by way of application. Friend, if you are here this morning and you are struggling with habitual sins, you must see the Lord upon his throne. It will cause you to despise your sin. If you are here this morning and you're struggling with pride or envy or bitterness, you must catch a glimpse of the Lord upon his throne. It will cause you to see yourself as you truly are. And it will humble you. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with discouragement arising from affliction, you need a glimpse of the Lord upon his throne. It will strengthen you to face whatever comes your way. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with forgiving someone who has hurt you, you need to see the Lord upon his throne. It will cause you to weep for that person. If you're here this morning and you're struggling to pray and worship, you need to see the Lord upon his throne. It will overwhelm you. If you're struggling in your marriage, you need to see the Lord upon his throne. It will cultivate that poverty of spirit so precious in God's sight and so indispensable in the home. 
If you're struggling with the call to deny self, you need to see the Lord upon his throne. It will make you willing to live for him. If you're struggling with addiction, you know what you need. You need to see the Lord upon his throne. It will capture your heart, satisfying your deepest longings. If you're struggling to resist the world's allurements, you need to see the Lord upon his throne. It will tear your heart from the world's unholy trinity of pleasure, profit, and power. If you're struggling with laziness and carelessness, you need to see the Lord upon his throne. It will awaken you from your slumber. If you're struggling to come to grips with endless wars, deep recessions, and numerous uncertainties, catch a glimpse of the Lord upon his throne. It will calm your fears. And if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, You need to see the Lord upon his throne. It will convince you that God is holy. You are sinful. Life is short. Hell is real. And Christ alone is Lord and Savior.